0: This is life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Greetings all, thank you for tuning in. Our guests today on Life Worlds are Tara Martin and Herb Hammond, both of whom have pioneered fascinating methods in how to develop large-scale maps and management plans for biodiverse and high-priority landscapes. What really sets them apart from others who are doing this work is their ability to weave and integrate the local and indigenous knowledge that is deeply held in place. In doing this, they're able to create new strategies that integrate cutting-edge Western science and indigenous worldviews. This kind of synthesis has been called two-eyed seeing, which is a phrase I really like, and it's a powerful way of creating new futures where everyone's wisdom can be brought to the table. To be successful in what they do, they've had to immerse themselves into the life worlds of both the humans and the local ecologies of where they operate. Having tried this myself, I can attest firsthand that it demands a superhero-like sensitivity and perceptual skill. In these interviews. Tara and Herb debunk the wholly misguided idea that separating humans from nature is the best way to restore and manage ecosystems. And they tell us instead how human touch is vital in tending to the land. If you remember back to the first episode of this season, when we spoke about agriculture, you might also remember this point, that human touch is vital in tending to the land. The role of practitioners like Tara and Herb is to be bridge builders between the hard data science and predictive modeling which involves a lot of maths excel sheets monitoring data collecting and then bringing that to governments and policy along with private investment and most importantly the lived realities on the ground so in this sense they are very much translators who listen to nature and to local communities in their unique dialects and are then able to use these insights to design a meta strategy of what actions to take where and how. I think that anyone who's working in nature regeneration or nature-based solutions will definitely enjoy digging further into their approaches. We will kick off today with Tara Martin, who I had the joy of meeting in person last summer close to Vancouver, where we kayaked out to a small Salish sea island and shared a delicious sunset picnic amongst a small old-growth grove. Tara is a scientist, professor, and the founder of the Martin Conservation Decisions Lab at the University of British Columbia. She's also the Liber Aero Chair in Conservation at UBC. In this interview, she'll cover the basics of conservation decision science and something that's called priority threat management, which is a tool that she's pioneered, and how these approaches help to prioritize complex and often very difficult to make conservation decisions. We'll discuss her lab's work with First Nations across Canada especially in the Fraser River Estuary, and the role that art and beauty play in her work. Peppered throughout the interview are her glorious descriptions of the returning and lost eco-cultural landscapes that she has worked tirelessly to protect. Then we will hear from Herb Hammond, who is one of the most respected elders in the space of nature-based planning, which he's now calling nature-directed planning. Herb started out as a conventional forester, but soon became pretty dispirited with the destructive practices he saw inside of the industry, which led him to go on and found the Silva Forest Foundation, which he ran with his wife Susie for 30 years. Over the course of their career, they've developed over 25 of these large nature-directed plans for Canada and around the world, upending the ways that landscape management is conceived and implemented. As always, Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy these abbreviated episodes, then you can tune in to the full, unedited hours found right beside wherever you found us here. For now, over to our conversation with Tara Martin. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. The work that you're doing is revolutionizing the way that conservation and science is done in British Columbia and Australia and other parts of the world. and I want us to get into exactly what that science is and how the approach of your lab and, in general, the field of decision making science is kind of transforming the way that conservation is done. And then I also want to get into the way that you're personally relating to nature and that kind of work and getting so close to species. And I was reading the papers that you sent me, and you're in this really interesting line of work where you're trying to bring a scientific method to situations of extreme uncertainty and a lot of conservation and and natural protection is that it's incredibly complex situations on the ground with many different stakeholders, infinite variables. And, you know, you have on your website turning data into decisions. And so I want to start off by talking about decision science, and then we can get into priority threat management and concrete examples. From my understanding of your papers, and I'll quote one or two things, decision science focuses on decision making and how decisions should be made. So it actually structures our thinking and how we think about issues and how we move to action from information, which is fascinating because it actually touches on pretty much everything in life. Like how do we decide at any point in the day what we're gonna drink or do or prioritize. And you had this line that says, rather than deploying complex and time-consuming analyses, better decisions, begins with knowing how to think through decisions. And so I'm curious about what led you to this. How did you find yourself operating and and practicing inside of this field of decision science in the first place?
1: Yeah, thanks, Alexa. That's a great, great question. I'll back up and bring you up to how I came to this space. So when I started out as an ecologist, I really felt that being an ecologist being a scientist collecting data and analyzing data and discovering you know the impacts of different threatening processes on biodiversity i felt that that was going to help me change the world transform the world in in positive ways and i was you know incredibly bright-eyed and enthusiastic. And I did a master's and then I did my PhD. And it was during my PhD that I realized that, you know, perhaps just going out and collecting data and kind of documenting this train wreck and biodiversity loss wasn't going to be enough. And I saw that this field of ecology that essentially You know, most of my ecologist colleagues that were interested in conservation, that's kind of what we were doing. We were documenting the impacts of the loss of old growth, the loss of native meadows, the loss of wetland systems, the loss of the Great Lakes. You know, it was very obvious the impacts of overfishing But what we weren't doing was finding the solutions. You know, there wasn't a lot of science that was focused on the solutions. And so that made me realize that I needed to not only understand the impact of these threats and multiple threats, impacts of climate change and impacts of herbivore hyperabundance and impacts of land use change and how do they interact. Not only do we need to know that, it's very important But it's actually even more important to be able to translate that into actionable things that we can do to mitigate and abate those threats. And so that was my bridge into this world of decision science, which is a very old discipline that's been employed across the fields of psychology, fields of medicine, even fields of operations research. It's a structured way of decomposing decisions and using data to help inform decisions. And so that became kind of my passion was to make that translation, to use the data that we were collecting in a way to really inform decisions. And and that actually started to change the type of data that we were actually collecting in the first place.
0: Oh, I really want to get to how the collection of the data even changed. It strikes me as so odd that more scientists, or maybe more scientists are feeling the sense of But what is my data used for and how is this leading to decision making? And okay, I can write 20 papers, but how is this affecting the real world? Do you find that in the conversations you have with your peers and your colleagues, there is that frustration within the scientific discipline and the academic discipline of like, how the hell does this translate into this kind of epically challenging moment in time?
1: I think many of us scientists were naive in thinking that, of course, this is going to be useful for informing decisions because it's great science. Uh, But unless we understand that decision-making process, it might not be. It probably won't be very useful. So I think there's a recognition now for those of us that really want to inspire transformational change that we may need to actually change the way we're doing our science um, to make it more usable and to be asking the right questions in the first place. And so, you know, a big part of decision science is around decision making under uncertainty. But the question is what uncertainty matters? You know, most of The things that we get excited about as scientists, that might not be the uncertainty that really makes the difference between choosing action A or B. You know, so we need to know what is the uncertainty that would actually lead us. To making a different decision. And that's the important piece. We want to know, should I be managing hyperabundant deer or should I be thinking about restoring this particular type of ecosystem in this way? Or should I be focusing on some other action? that's that critical uncertainty that we need to focus on, you know, not necessarily which plant species grows in this niche versus this other niche.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sorry, little plant species, but you're less important than solutions to the train wreck. (laughs) Um, So I want to ground this in one of the examples I love the most from your work. And if I understand correctly, under the umbrella of decision science, there's lots of different frameworks that can be applied to make decisions. And one of those is priority threat management, which pretty much sounds like what it is, which is, okay, there's 20 different threats on this ecosystem. How the hell do we prioritize them? And buck for buck, dollar for dollar, have the most efficient intervention. So it's a cost-effectiveness structure, what to do and where. Um, You've applied this across kind of different parts of the country. And I'd love to talk about the Fraser River estuary example in the greater Vancouver area. And for those who haven't been to Vancouver, it's basically the the large estuary that flows out of the city. And you applied priority threat management to endangered species and other ecosystems there. So talk about the ways that there can be extreme uncertainty, as you said, in where to act and then very specifically how your research allowed to prioritize actions in that case study.
1: Yeah, so the motivation for developing the tool was really recognizing that, you know, around the world, we're not doing very good at recovering species at risk and and part of that is because we have a process which isn't really identifying those solutions. We're creating recovery strategies that have a long laundry list of things that we should do, but there's no prioritization of those things. And Given that we don't have the budget to recover every species in every place tomorrow, we are already having to prioritize. So there is a need to develop this tool that helps us identify, as you said, which actions can we take that are going to lead to the recovery of the most species for the least cost to society. So we applied this method to the Lower Fraser, which is this incredibly rich, biodiverse place on the west coast of British Columbia, a place that has been lived in for millennia by First Nations and is now is kind of the hub of BC's largest growing population. And it also has supports 102 species at risk of extinction. Everything from southern resident killer whales to Pacific mole shrews and a vast array of incredible plants and migratory birds. And, you know, what we found was that if we continue sort of what we call business as usual, so just making the same decisions, accepting the same types of developments that we have been accepting and undertaking for the past hundred years, if we keep doing those same things and we don't implement any additional conservation measures, most of those species are not going to be thriving and self-sustaining in 25 years' time. However, if we do implement this set of priority actions, and they range from things like green infrastructure to aquatic habitat restoration to disease control in the aquatic environment, if we implement this set of priority actions, we have a good chance of recovering all of those species. Now, that's, to me, an amazingly optimistic message for an estuary that has been so hammered by you know, human development over the past 150 years, to know that we have a chance of recovery of southern resident killer whales, a chance of recovery of these incredible dinosaurs of the rivers, these sturgeon, green and white sturgeon, five species of salmon and all of the distinct genetic populations of those salmon. I mean, that to me is really extraordinary. The price tag is—it's big. It's—it's it's going to cost you know nearly half a billion dollars to do that.
0: Canadian dollars, right? We should add, which <laughs> is different.
1: Canadian dollars. That's... So, so really, it's a bargain. <laughs> And when you break that down, it is a bargain. If you look at the annual equivalent investment over 25 years, that's about 15 million Canadian a year, or that's one beer or one cup of coffee per person living in this region per year. That is very inexpensive for what we could potentially get by making that investment. Because it's not only the species recovery that we're getting, we're also sequestering carbon. We're also creating more than 50 full-time jobs to implement all of these actions. Um, We're potentially saving a salmon fishing industry. And so the co-benefits alone, we're looking at that right now, but we predict that the co-benefits, the economic co-benefits alone, let alone all of the cultural co-benefits, that they're likely to outweigh the cost of that half-billion-dollar investment.
0: I'm going to link, by the way, to your um, report and study of this in the show notes because it was also beautifully illustrated and just such a work of art. I think what's so interesting about the priority threat management that you guys applied to the estuary and other places is... It does say, okay, we need to do these things before these other actions and maybe prioritize these species over other species. So I'm wondering, as a scientist and as a mother and a woman and a human who's in love with all of life, how does it feel to say, okay, well, we should maybe prioritize the raptors and the bats or the killer whales or you know, even the idea of prioritizing a species over another how does that come up internally for you when you're making these kinds of prognoses?
1: Yeah, and I think making decisions about what to save and where, are they're not easy decisions. And so what we try to do is we... We move away from prioritizing the species and think about prioritizing the actions. And so what we develop is a prospectus for investing in the actions. And the actions might say, this is the set of actions that are going to lead to the recovery of the most species for the least cost. And there may be some species that show up that we don't have actions that are going to recover those species. There's two things that might happen. One, it might be incredibly expensive. And two, it may be that we just actually have left it too long and there are no actions on the table at the moment that would allow for the recovery of these species in situ as opposed to a captive breeding program in a zoo or something else. So those are really, really challenging situations, but it's important to know what the data is saying. It's important to understand what our likelihood of success is going to be. And it's also important to know that, okay, if most of our budget is going to be used to save these two particular species, and there's another hundred species that are not going to be saved if we invest in those two, that's a decision that we need to be able to make with our eyes open. It's also, if those are two species that we really, really care about as a society, then we can find that money, you know, but we can only find the money if we know how much we need. So this is another important part of the process is really being clear about, you know, if our business is about saving biodiversity, well, then let's use some business thinking and actually be very clear about what the costs are and what the benefits are. Because to date in conservation, we haven't really done that. We've been kind of shopping without price tags, you know, getting money to do stuff without ever really costing out what it's going to take. So it's a new way of trying to frame these problems and to provide, you know, this prospectus for investment that will resonate with folks that that know about investment.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to ask this next question because I know you. How do you balance the deeply caring and sensorial part of your nature. And I'm sure that this is the same for many scientists and people in your lab and otherwise doing this work. You're doing this work because you're in love with the world and you're in love with nature and these creatures. And I want to get to this after, but the data collection piece, how close that gets you to the land and observing species over time. How do you balance that sort of deeply emotional aspect with the hard, practical, numerical, well, this is the data and this is the frameworks? Do you find that you can Integrate both of those in yourself as you're going around your daily work, or do you find that sometimes they're at odds with each other?
1: Oh, yeah. I love, Alexa, that you get under the hood. (laughs) I think fundamentally, it's my love and my passion for the plants and animals and the ecosystems and the processes that motivates me to sit at the computer for hours and to crunch the data and to go out and speak publicly and do all these things. I mean, I I love the data crunching, but I don't necessarily love sitting at a computer all the time. And there's many aspects of my job that I find, you know, super challenging, but I do it because I'm motivated by the stories of these plants and these ecosystems. You know, I feel a very deep connection to the places that I work and the people that are also connected to these places and that have been connected to them for for millennia. And we've talked about this phenomenon of shifting baselines. And this is a real kind of motivation of a lot of my work. Daniel Pauly, who is a wonderful fishery scientist at the University of British Columbia where I work. And over 20 years ago, he coined this phrase of shifting baselines where we alter the world, but we forget what it was like beforehand. And each subsequent generation regards us progressively poorer natural world as normal. And I see that all around us. And I feel like part of my role is to help people shift their baseline and to show people what a baseline for these different ecosystems could look like and used to look like. And so, I, you know, with my own kids, you know, a son who's seven and a daughter, Silka, who's eight, and what they view today, that's their normal. But I, what I'm trying to show them is that there are places that are left that have a different normal. And that those places are really precious and they provide a window into the past. And they help us to reimagine what our future can look like. And it's it's not to say that we can always go back to another time, but if we don't protect some of these really precious baselines that still exist... Whether it's the three percent of coastal rainforest that's left in British Columbia, or the five percent of Gary oak ecosystems that still remain, if we don't protect those, then we we become lost. You know, we've we've lost uh, so much of our past and our heritage and our future.
0: I mean, yeah, we know ourselves only as much as we are reflected in the world back to ourselves. What's it been like for you when you've gone into those more? Uh, I guess ancient baselines of ecosystems and you've collected data in them and you've spent time collecting DNA and I don't even know what data you're collecting out there actually you've got to tell me <laughs> what's it like when you're when you're out there what does it feel like what are you collecting how are you collecting it and and maybe as part of that question Is there ever a role for intuition in what you're doing in terms of that data collection? Like you're in the ecosystem and you're sensing something and you're like, oh, there's something important here. I'm so curious, like bring us into what that's like.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So let's think about these Gary oak meadow, maritime meadow ecosystems in the Salish Sea. So these are these oak meadows, which are scattered across this island archipelago. There's around 600 islands in southern Canada, and that they go down into the US, into the San Juans. And they've got this extraordinary Gary oak ecosystem, which is actually where most of the plant biodiversity in all of British Columbia, in fact, in all of Canada are in these ecosystems. So they're incredibly rich. And they historically were incredibly important ecosystems for Coast Salish First Nations. And so we've been studying and working in these ecosystems for over 20 years now. We collect everything from eDNA. We collect information on deer numbers and density. We collect information on all of the plants. Uh, We collect tree density and tree health and just about everything you can imagine. We've collected data on below ground, meso and macro fauna. So an extraordinary amount of information has been building up over this past 20 years about the state of these ecosystems and the threats to these ecosystems. And I think that the piece that I really didn't fully comprehend growing up in these ecosystems, or even when I first started studying these ecosystems, was that the biggest threat to these ecosystems was the loss of First Nation stewardship of these ecosystems. It wasn't the land clearing or the deer or the invasive species, it all stemmed from the loss of the stewardship of Coast Salish peoples. And so Coast Salish tended these meadows as their gardens. These were their food gardens. They were nurtured and passed through the matrilineal line, and they were extraordinarily rich in biodiversity because they were tended to be that way. It didn't just evolve without humans. These are eco-cultural landscapes. And so when colonizers arrived, you know, in the 1850s in this region and First Nations were struck by disease and then forcibly removed from these areas, uh, we lost all of those stewardship techniques for these regions which included cultural burning so lighting fires that kept these meadows open kept the douglas firs from invading into the meadows Um, we lost the way that the meadows were tended weeding out the unwanted plants and keeping space for these rich food plants things like great camas whose bulb is you know the size of a small potato and as rich in carbohydrates and once it's baked it's the most sweet deliciousness amazing and there's a, an early explorer described them as being more delicious than fried bananas <laughs> so we we lost the hunting we lost the hunting of herbivores of deer of elk you know which in recent times those populations of deer have become hyper abundant 10 times their. Former abundance. And so they've browsed out most of those wonderful food plants. So I think the evolution in my kind of journey as an ecologist in this region is that people are part of these landscapes and have been part of these landscapes forever. And when you look around the world, there's very few landscapes where people haven't been for an exceptionally long time and aren't intimately tied with the evolution of those places, the evolution of the plants and the animals of those places.
0: That was Tara Martin, head of the Martin Conservation Decisions Lab at UBC. I've linked to her papers in the show notes for the curious who'd like to read firsthand how science and priority threat modeling look in action. Also, on a side note, some of those papers have beautiful illustrations that I highly advise you to really take a look at. Now, it's over to Herb Hammond, professional forester, forest ecologist, and founder of the Silva Forest Foundation, who will upend several myths about conventional forestry and bring us into how he designs landscape maps that serve both nature and humans alike. Let's jump right into it. I would love to begin... By setting the scene in terms of just the terminology of your work and what it is that you've been doing for most of your life, but especially for the last 30 years or so with the Silver Forest Foundation, you developed these nature-based plans all across Canada and in other parts of the world. And I understand that the nature-based planning or ecosystem-based planning terminology now has a different name. But before we get into the semantics, what is it that you do in the world and that
2: you have been doing? Uh, What I do in the world is be part of nature. That's my goal. And that led to the development of our planning system. But most importantly, I see nature as a teacher. I see nature as someone who can nurture me and others if we listen. It's often been said by Indigenous people that nature speaks to those who listen. And I try to do a lot of listening. And from that listening, help myself and others, develop ways of being reciprocal and respectful parts of nature.
0: In terms of how people think about the ecosystems they live in and those economies, how have you been able to listen to nature to develop the plans that you guys worked on? And what's the process of even coming to terms with what a landscape might be Requesting or asking for both the humans and the more than human lives inside of it?
2: Well, the first thing to know about that is that you have to be in nature. You can't do that from a computer or a geographic information system. They can be helpers, but first of all, you have to be a part of nature yourself and you have to listen. And most importantly, you have to start from your heart. Uh, Your heart doesn't lie. It speaks the truth, and we need to be comfortable with that. We need to learn to trust our heart, to trust our intuition. We're the only living organism that seems to want to deny our intuition. It was put there in all beings for survival. And those overarching thoughts are what led me to think about practical ways that I could engage people both with their heart and with nature. And that led to a practical planning system that is nature based. But what I realize more and more as I do it is that it's not so much nature based as it is nature directed. Nature is in the driver's seat here, and we need to listen to her. So I have changed the name of what we do from nature based, which is a bit anthropocentric to begin with, to Nature directed, which recognizes the rightful place of nature and the need for reciprocity with nature, not only in our plans, but in our actions.
0: How would a a nature directed, or in the old terminology, nature based plan look like? Like if I were to come across one on the table right now in this room. How could I tell that it was a nature-directed development plan? What would be the components of it and perhaps is the ones that you develop through your own system?
2: Well, first of all, a nature-directed plan doesn't assume human development. We want to be really clear about that point. A nature-directed plan has as a first priority to protect the integrity and resilience of nature and the ecosystems that comprise nature. And within that protection... It works at a community level to develop a balanced use of landscapes within ecological limits. And by balanced use, I mean balanced between human and non human users of that landscape. And if you saw a plan sitting in front of you on a table, one of the things that would set it aside from many plans is that it's very map based, it's very visual, it consists of a series of interpretive maps that are now largely produced using geographic information systems because of the amount of data they involve. And the maps tell a story. You start with map one and maybe end up at map 14. And the maps tell the story of the natural character of the ecosystem what it was like before industrial civilizations impacted it, but it does include that natural character indigenous management systems. So it starts out with that picture and that in most cases is a reconstruction because in many cases around earth, the natural character has been obliterated by our industrial civilizations. And then it contrasts that natural character with the current condition. So the difference between the current condition and the natural character can be thought of as the restoration deficit, that what needs to be fixed going forward in order to fit ourselves into ecosystems in respectful ways, and for those ecosystems to continue to provide the gifts that sustain our way of being as well as all beings. And another key map, defines ecological limits. Ecological limits are like flashing yellow lights out there in nature to say, don't be very aggressive here. Don't modify this very much or you'll change the form of nature outside of its natural range of variation. So that's a very important concept and it's a concept that's vital to respect in anything that we do. And There's some other maps that deal with the specific character of the landscape and ecosystems where we're doing the plan. But eventually, you get to a next to final map, which describes a protected landscape network or a network of ecological reserves, which forms the framework of protection within which human activities can be fit as long as they respect ecological limits. And the final map then takes guidance from that next to final map of ecological reserves and puts in place what we call human use areas. Those human use areas start by recognizing a very simple principle, and that's focus first on what to leave, then on what you can use. And what to leave are fully functioning ecosystems at all scales. So that applies to even the areas where you will be carrying out certain kinds of uses. That process of determining human use areas is community based, which is really important because that's the location and the only location through time where human beings have developed sustainable economies. Economies that last through time and don't overtax the natural systems, that don't move beyond ecological limits. So that's a quick description, minus the visual parts of it, of what a nature-directed plan consists of.
0: I think an example that comes to mind is this absurd notion I learned about in British Columbia, which is that leaving dead wood in the forest is a bad thing and that decaying wood should just be removed because it's extravagant and it should be used for wood chips or quote-unquote green fuel and bio pellets but obviously coming from a an ecological standpoint you need that death and that decay for an ecosystem to have new life
2: to quote Aldo Leopold the intelligent tinker keeps all the parts so we want to keep those parts there whether we know what they do or not but what's particularly perverse about that decision that you talk about in British Columbia and elsewhere for that matter in forestry jurisdictions is that those wood pellets captured from those tree parts or fallen trees are then made into pellets and shipped to largely one of the biggest sources is the UK and also Japan where they're burned to produce electricity. That process not including the transportation of all that distance. The process in and of itself of doing that produces significantly more greenhouse gases per unit of energy produced than burning coal. So here we are on the threshold of runaway climate change, and we have people ignoring the science that you need to leave fallen trees in place and further ignoring the science by making them into wood pellets and burning them for electricity. I want to add one other really important thing about your example of fallen trees, and that's that decayed wood is nature's water storage and filtration system. Watersheds that function well, have, uh, depending on their size, have millions and billions of tons of decayed wood. That stores and filters water and slowly releases it into the system the water that all of us use the vast amount of it comes from forests and that water depends upon plentiful supplies of decayed wood not just decayed wood from forests of the past but decayed wood going forward just if you think about it decayed wood holds 20 times as much water as a given volume of most mineral soil so if you don't have that decayed wood there then you don't have that water storage and filtration system. And climate change is really emphasizing the need for it because it's drying everything out, making it even more critical to maintain those fallen tree structures and decayed wood in a system to conserve water.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, they're like above ground sponges that hold in the moisture. What are some other things that are absurd that are currently happening in some of these kinds of landscape management practices that you've seen and that you've probably rallied against?
2: Well, the whole notion of clear cut and plant trees is a broken idea. And the idea never had really any merit. It was developed and supported by a lot of assumptions of convenience as the best way to manage forests and grow trees. But in reality, all it simply constitutes is the fastest, cheapest way to turn trees into money. And if you look at clear cuts and what we call short rotation forestry or growing trees for a short period of time, something in the order of 40 to 70 years before you then are going to cut them down again, that whole process is erroneously referred to as sustainable forestry. But if you compare that to nature and natural systems, even in boreal systems where trees live shorter lifetimes than they do in temperate rainforests, for example, or in mountain forests, like are found where I live and in Europe across much of that landscape. Trees there may live to be three or four times older. But in any event, where you have short life trees, they live for 150, 250 years and more. We're talking about truncating that natural progression or lifespan of trees and a forest into 40 to 70 years. So in doing that, you lose all the function of most of that length or that aging of forests. A big one are the fallen trees and water that we just spoke about. When it comes to water and carbon storage and sequestration or capture of of carbon, which we're all concerned about in the climate change era, no forests do it better than old forests. And yet we're busily wiping them off the face of the planet and with no intention to ever replace them again. In fact, all we're going to do is grow young trees and cut them down again. It doesn't take much analysis to realize that we're basically destroying the natural system that sustains us, that has made life as we know it possible. So it's a pretty serious and far-reaching problem because it extends across the planet. Wherever forests are, that's the general approach that's taken to them. And the other thing to know about that approach to forestry is that there's been some really good recent analysis. There are a number of climate scientists that are proposing what they call pro not reforestation, but pro-forestation, and they're advocating for growing forests, trees to their natural lifetime. So that whole process that I just described, it fits very nicely with nature-directed planning because it's focusing on what to protect, not on what to use. And the other thing to add here is that when it comes to climate change, People need to understand that tree plantations and short rotation forestry are an example of irrecoverable carbon. And irrecoverable carbon simply means that within the time frame we have left to mitigate global warming, that there's no way that cutting down trees and planting new trees are going to capture enough carbon to make a difference. So, You can see that deficit that we've created as irrecoverable carbon. I I like that concept because it makes it really clear how serious what we're doing really is when it comes to survival, not only of our species, but of all species.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty hard to greenwash when you use a word like irrecoverable. I also just want to point out a pun that you did earlier when you spoke about truncating a forestry ecosystem. That was an unintentional, quite brilliant pun. How have you tried to upend this way of thinking that is so rife in British Columbia and elsewhere? I know that you built and ran a school in the West Kootenays for many years where you were trying to bring traditional foresters into the land and run them through certain exercises that would imbue them with a different sensibility towards the land. It would be really interesting in the brief time we have left, if you could explain how you worked with people to implement a lot of what you're describing? What kinds of exercises, what kind of tools did you use to transform their way of thinking?
2: Well, it all goes back to the principle we've talked about from the beginning, and that's to be part of nature. It's amazing how many people make decisions about forests without ever being in the forest. Their problems come in envelopes and leave in envelopes. So the first step was to realize that if we were going to teach people and share these ideas with people, it needed to be in the forest. The school was purposely built by volunteers in the forest so that we could be immersed there, not just while we were talking about things, but people stayed there. They came for a week. We had cabins, had a little school building. So we were always there. Uh, It was very easy to talk about nature because we were part of her. And the other key thing that we did was walk people through these plans but we could walk them through the plans and then go outside and look at examples so things came to life there their plans and ideas were no longer transmitted back and forth in envelopes they were confronted by actually having to look at nature we also did trips from that school to places where industrial forestry was practiced and got people to think about what they just learned and experienced in a natural system versus now what they were looking at in a clear cut or a tree plantation so all of a sudden the synapses connect and people go oh this clear cut and tree plantation is missing a whole lot of nature that's essential and the other thing that we did was a really simple exercise that i first did with kids and i have to say that when i did it with adults the first time I was a little bit uh, fearful of how it might turn out. But the exercise goes like this. You start off to take a walk in the forest and you tell people that we're gonna walk for a ways and I want you to not talk to each other and just watch what's around you. And when we get to a place and a little opening in the forest, we sit down and I say, okay, what did you see that was important? And they talk about things they saw that was important And then I shared some things that I saw that I thought was important. Then I get people to close their eyes and listen. And after a while, listening to the forest, listening to nature, people open their eyes and they talk about what they heard. Then the next step is to get people to walk around and lift things up, smell. I always kind of caution people, don't taste it unless you check with somebody who knows but get familiar with the odors and the pieces that are all around you. And then we talk about that again. And then I conclude that exercise by getting people to hug a tree, to share the energy that that being is providing to them and to think about uh, not only hugging that tree with love, but with communication. And it's interesting that we always had a little uh, debriefing session after this course. And many times I had people say things like, we came to this course because we thought you were crazy, but we're leaving with a whole different view of forests and how to relate to them. And so we thank you for that. So I think it's not as hard as we think to touch people's hearts and to get them to start connecting their hearts to their brains. The biggest difficulty is that most of those people went back into a bureaucracy or a timber company where that way of being was not reinforced. And while they added a new dimension, I think over time it was easy for them to fall back into the old way of being. And we need to think about in our systems how to support people who want to make that change.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks time where we will be talking about law and nature, looking at both indigenous law systems and the rights of nature. As per our tradition on the show, I'm going to end with a fun fact to bring you into a rather unexpected life world. As we heard, both of our guests today are living in British Columbia, and so I chose a fact that has to do with salmon and anadromous fish, which are fish that swim from ocean upstream back into... Fresh water. So, did you know that it's still a mystery how fish like salmon can find their way back from thousands of miles deep out at sea, voyaging from those murky ocean depths towards the mouths of gushing rivers, all the way back to their home stream, back to their birthplace, to spawn and then to die? This navigational feat is believed to be a combination of magnetic impulses, where the salmon can navigate the Earth's magnetic fields like a compass. And then they combine this with an insanely tuned sense of smell that can detect the odor of their home stream amongst all the other river particles in a sort of smell memory bank. Also, fascinatingly, once the salmon die, they feed the forest. Up to 80% of the phosphorus and nitrogen found upstream in plants and trees originated in the deep sea. And guess who transported them? The salmon. And as they fish upstream, they are snatched up by bears and birds and all sorts of creatures who leave the carcasses deep inland to decompose on hungry soils. With fish in their fibers, the trees provide shade and rooted earth to ensure that the streams remain cool and able to flow. What a beautiful, delicate evolutionary reciprocity. That's it for me today on Life Worlds. I'm Alexa Firminis, your host, and as always, I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on our website, LifeWorld.Earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.